0: Hey everyone, Sarah Peck here, and this is the Startup Pregnant podcast. Today's guest moved to Vancouver for a dream job, but she left about eight months after she started, and she ended up stumbling accidentally into starting a venture fund. In 2012, she started Peak Ventures. She ended up taking it through several iterations of what the business was and how it worked, and In our conversation today, you'll hear how she says, in her words, this business became over a series of five years, the home and launch pad for a lot of ideas. She knew what she was setting out to do. She wanted to help people move investment in a more meaningful way. And she also was wondering where all the women investors were. So she started Peak Ventures. Today, we talk to Bonnie Foley Wong. She is the founder of Peak Ventures. She's the founding investor in Peak Fund. And she's also the CFO of a US based specialty financial services firm. It's called Crown North Corp, Inc. She's the author of a book called Integrated Investing, which the subtitle is pretty interesting. It's called Impact Investing with Head, Heart, Body, and Soul. So she's got a CPA from Ontario and, a, and she's a CFA charter holder. She's got a Bachelor of Mathematics and a Master of Accounting from the University of Waterloo. But with all of this technical scientific mathematics background, she also brings to us an emotional and decision-making framework. In today's episode, you're going to hear why she believes so strongly that our emotions are important and that they are vital pieces of wisdom in our decision-making, how emotions drive decisions. And you'll hear her story about what challenges she ran into with starting her own business. And with the timing of her first baby, she waited a while before having her first kid at age 39. So take a listen. This is one of my favorite interviews. I'm sure I say that about all of them because I am so grateful to be able to talk to all of these women. Here we go. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. This podcast is sponsored by Meet Edgar, a social media scheduling tool. With Edgar, you only have to create content once and he does the hard work for you, making your content go further. As a busy parent and an entrepreneur, I don't have 10 hours a week to do social media scheduling. Who has 10 hours a week for that? To try it out for two weeks for free, go to ed.gr slash startuppregnant and get access to a free trial. You will be in love with them as soon as you realize just exactly what Edgar does for you. As always, hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a minute to leave us a review, we would love that. If you need any of the show notes from the show, head to StartupPregnant.com. All right,
1: everybody. We are here today with Bonnie foley Wong. She is the founder of Peak Ventures and the founding investor in Peak Fund. She's also the CFO of a U.S.-based specialty financial services firm, Crown Northrop Incorporated. And she's the author of a book called Integrated Investing, Impact Investing with Head, Heart, Body, and Soul. Bonnie helps a diverse community of leaders pursue integrated investing. And with over 19 years of experience in mobilizing capital for entrepreneurial businesses as a financer, an investor, and an entrepreneur, she has collectively financed over a billion dollars of alternative investments in Europe and North America. She's a CPA, a CA, and a CFA charter holder, and she's a bachelor of mathematics, and a Master of Accounting from the University of Waterloo. And she's based out of Vancouver, Canada, with her husband and daughter. Bonnie, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you here. Thanks for
2: having me. I'm so excited and really honored to be on your podcast.
1: Well, I am so excited to ask you lots of questions about things that I don't know very much about. So let's dive in. First, can Mm -hmm. you tell us about... What is Peak Ventures and how did you get started on this path? Mm -hmm.
2: So Peak Ventures is an impact investment and management firm. I founded it in 2012, so it's about five years old. And it was admittedly a bit of an accidental journey, as it were, because six years ago, I had moved to Vancouver for a job, what I thought would be a dream job. I ended up leaving it about eight months after I started. And so I'm actually coming up on the six-year anniversary of leaving that job and having to figure out, okay, what do I do next? And I had taken a stab at starting my own business before. So in 2012, I took a second stab at it and started what is now Peak Ventures. I've been through a few different models. I tried a few different things, like it was an advisory firm. It was kind of the home and launch pad for various ideas, testing different things. But a lot of it was basically around two key questions. How can we help investors move money in a more purposeful way? And my other question was, where are all the women investors? And so Peak Ventures became the firm that I founded, that I do all of my work out of, that was kind of like this container for answering those two questions.
1: Wow. So I think that what's really interesting here is your honesty about how difficult or you've tried different times to start your own business once unsuccessfully, and then also kind of swimming around trying to figure out what it was exactly. I think that's Mm -hmm. an experience that a lot of people have and isn't one that's told as often. I mean, it rings true to me. We start something. Is it working? Is it not working? What do we do? Can you talk a little bit about what that was like?
2: Yeah. It's funny talking about it now because it's been five, six years. And, you know, I'm really fortunate to be in a place where I am doing what I love. And I've been able to build a business in the container for doing all that. But it didn't happen overnight. Had you spoken to me five, six years ago when Peak Ventures was just starting, I wouldn't even know how to describe it. Like I had no idea what it was going to be. It was a bit of like, if you can imagine a person flailing and just like throwing stuff against the wall, trying to figure out what sticks. And it was a product of, you know, I'll be quite frank, stuff not quite going to plan. And because this is the Startup Pregnant podcast, and we're going to talk about business and family, it is all kind of wrapped up into one. I had a plan Mm. (laughs) in 2011 that I was going to start a family in 2012. You know, me and my husband had actually just gotten married in 2011. We had mapped this out. Like, you know, here's what we're going to do. I had a, you know, great job with great benefits. And we were just getting settled into Vancouver. And that was the plan. And things didn't go to plan. (laughs) And it was, as I said, like I had started on my own entrepreneurial journey a few years previous before I moved to Vancouver. But 2012 was really really the start of that huge impetus because things weren't going to plan and I really had to find a way to land on my feet and create a way of working that worked for me that either helped me shelter myself from unexpected things (laughs) or at least be I don't want to say be in control because I wouldn't say like a lot of stuff is not within our control but it's more just having the tools and resources around me so I could navigate uncertainty and change a lot better. And from 2012 onward, since founding Peak Ventures, there was a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of stress, a lot of like, oh my gosh, how are we going to do all this? You know, what's the future going to look like? How do I create a livelihood that is meaningful and makes use of all the skills that I have as an entrepreneur? And you know, it's safe to say that it took a few years to figure all that out. Not that I've figured out everything, but I certainly am more equipped to handle risk and uncertainty now.
1: This is so fascinating. So mm-hmm. you...
2: It's fun too. Like, this is the really weird thing. Like, I can say this now.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I actually,
2: I'm, I'm that person because I do now manage and advise a number of different businesses in different capacities. And I'm the person who shows up. You know, when there is uncertainty and risk and a challenge, and I'm energized by trying to figure it out and kind of being that person who kind of (laughs) calmly looks at risk and uncertainty and helps the people around me to figure it out and make the right decisions to at least take the next step forward. It's bizarre, like how much that is. It almost sounds strange. <laughs>
1: to no, it's it's true to being an entrepreneur, actually. I think it is. So 2011, you had a plan. you were going to start a family in 2012. You also mm-hmm. left your job to start this venture. Mm-hmm. And it was a, filled with a tremendous amount of uncertainty. How did that affect your parenting journey? Did you decide to go ahead and say, well, you know what, even though everything's uncertain, we're still going to start a family? Like, Can you talk about how those two coincided?
2: I parked the family planning plans and, you know, it wasn't exactly easy to do, I would say. And I remember very distinctly, I was invited to an event where, you know, it was a group of very experienced women leaders, as well as, you know, some up and comers. I was actually part of this group of leaders. (laughs) I was honored to be part of that group. But the advice that I got from, because I I candidly shared this then, and and the advice from the women in that group said, you know, if you want to start a family, start now. Like, don't wait, just do it. And I didn't follow that advice. I'll be honest. I just felt like, no, I'm starting this business. I got to get my career, my livelihood to be a bit more stable. I need to figure a whole bunch of stuff out. No way can I even contemplate starting a family. My husband and I just parked it. We just put it on the back burner.
1: Was there a moment when you had some sort of business success or like a moment when you said, okay, things are going all right enough and now we'll start? How long did it take and what ended up propelling you back to... Starting to get pregnant?
2: So it didn't happen that way either.
0: Okay, okay.
2: (laughs) So let's see. So backtrack. So 2013, I was working with a colleague. I was sort of doing things on contract. It was pretty okay. It wasn't fantastic in terms of stability. Like the role was wonderful, but in terms of stability, still not quite there. But time was ticking because in 2013, I was 39. (laughs) So it actually was more a biological clock saying, Like, we can't wait. We simply have to do something now. Mm. It's funny. I can't quite remember exactly, you know, time and place, but I guess we kind of felt like things were okay enough. Wasn't perfect, wasn't perfect circumstances. Certainly weren't the circumstances I imagined for myself in terms of starting a family, but it was okay enough. And end of 2013, I did get pregnant. I think I found out on, this is very candid stuff. I think I found out on Boxing Day that I was pregnant and I was like, what a great Christmas gift. This is so awesome. And then New Year's Eve, I experienced the most pain I'd ever experienced at that time in my life and I miscarried. But get this, it gets better because a business partner and I had decided in December that we were going to start a startup accelerator. And in January, 2014, we started a business. I remember the very first day we showed up together to work on this thing together. And I was in tears because I told him like, I, you know, you know, I'm really excited. We're starting this, but you know, this is what happened over the holidays. <laughs> it was tough. And so it was kind of this funny thing because, you know, by sharing that with my business partner, I revealed that we were trying to start a family and we're about to start this accelerator I don't know, it kind of went a little bit unspoken, like we didn't really talk about it too much, but obviously it was in the air and around. This is kind of a credit to how it's so important to have supportive, aligned people around you Mm -hmm. because, you know, I was working with someone who maybe understanding is the right way of describing it and this kind of quiet understanding. We didn't have to make a big deal about it. We didn't have to talk about it a lot. Is sort of at the back of his mind, and he he's an entrepreneur through and through as well. And so maybe that open mindedness and agility to kind of deal with like whatever kind of happens is part and parcel with being entrepreneur. And so my husband and I kept trying, and I think it was my birthday in March. I turned forty, and I found out I was pregnant again. Ah, and then that was
1: it. <laughs> and that was and it. So
2: Yeah. And so called 2014 a very fertile year because I started an accelerator. It's called Spring. My business partner still runs it and I'm not, I'm not involved in it anymore, but I started Spring Activator. I was working on my, on peak fund as well. I was writing my book, Integrate Investing, and I was pregnant. Holy. I know. (laughs) So talk about imperfect circumstances, but you kind of do what you have to do. And at that time, I was just pursuing all these things. And in some ways, getting pregnant and having a deadline motivated me to just get off my butt and be really efficient and effective and just get stuff done.
1: <laughs> okay. So I want to back up and, and kind of stitch this together in my own head so that I fully understand. Mm-hmm. So 2012, you launch peak ventures. Yeah. And you were throwing stuff up against the wall, trying to figure out what it was. And you put a pin in getting pregnant because you had just started this new thing. But then 2013 comes along and you're like, okay, there's a clock. It's ticking, whatever that metaphor means. But I've got some urgency. I'm going to start trying. And then in 2014 in March is when you get pregnant. And you'd launch... The Spring Spring, Accelerator. Spring Activator. Spring Activator.
2: And in the The background, I was still working on getting the fund together. So it might sound a little bit confusing. I was running a lot of different things in parallel. Mm -hmm. Peak Ventures was my container for all of this. Okay. And I ended up launching three different things. (laughs) So
1: describe well, the, to us well, for the, people...
2: The book actually wasn't finished in 2014, but okay. I was writing it as well. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: So describe to us for people who aren't familiar with investing or venture capital, what's the difference between Peak Ventures and Peak Fund?
2: So Peak Ventures is the manager. Peak Fund has investors in it. There's 29 investors in it, 24 of which are women, representing over 80% of the capital. And so Peak Ventures manages that fund. Peak Fund doesn't do anything other than pool the capital together from investors and then invest in ventures. And the focus for Peak Fund is women-led technology ventures here in British Columbia, Canada. Peak Fund doesn't have any employees. It's really just the vehicle for the capital and for making the investments. Mm. Peak Ventures is where I do all of my management and advisory work. So it's the manager for that fund, I manage other businesses through Peak Ventures as well. It's essentially the publisher for my book and is the home for all of the work that I do. Gotcha. Mm -hmm.
1: And how did you end up finding what stuck? You said you threw a bunch of things against the wall. What ended up working?
2: Running Peak Ventures as a management firm is what ended up working. As I said, I had started it in 2012, but it didn't really become you know, fully the management firm that it is until 2014. And, and kind of after my daughter was born, like really cementing, okay, I'm going to do all of my work under this brand and under this umbrella, every contract will go through that. Because prior to that, I kind of did this weird mix of, you know, some of the contracts would be in my own name. Spring was a completely different business. (laughs) And even starting spring was, kind of a final test of how I would divide up my work because I always wondered, you know, can I serve investors? Can I help investors and entrepreneurs? And I worked out that I'm in a better position to focus on investors, bring new investors into the venture ecosystem, especially, you know, enable and empower more women to be angel investors or venture investors. And as a consequence of doing that, as a consequence of helping investors and building a more diverse community, I will then help entrepreneurs. I worked out from starting The Accelerator that I'm not necessarily the person to run workshops for entrepreneurs or coach people through capital raising. Although I do do that as a consequence of what I do because people come and ask me questions about capital raising. And I am working on a second book on capital raising, it's focused for entrepreneurs, but it's really more with a lens of, hey, entrepreneurs, like you're investors too. You are the first and biggest investor in your own startup. Here are some tools to help you think like an investor that will actually help you attract other investors. After several years of trying to work out, you know, who am I going to help first? And where am I most useful in this ecosystem? I worked out that it is on the investor side. And so I ended up, Focusing on that. Curiously, my background is as a financier, I've always advised entrepreneurs, but never really thought of myself as an entrepreneur until more recently. And then it's really been on only in the last few years, again, especially after my daughter was born, that I, you know, have learned or am learning to roll up my sleeves, get dirty in some of the operations of the businesses that I'm helping to manage or advise, be in that. CEO seat. (laughs) So I kind of did my career a little bit backwards, but it's
1: like the right order for me. I find this all so interesting. Thank you. Of course. It might be a little
2: bit confusing, but it's because I didn't come to be an entrepreneur in what I think might be the traditional way. Like entrepreneurship was something other people did, you know, as I was growing up.
1: Why Why do you think that was?
2: So looking back, My family, my parents weren't entrepreneurs. I didn't have a lot of entrepreneurs in my immediate family. There is one, at least my aunt, and, but I never really knew what entrepreneurship was. It was not really talked about in my household. And then also what I studied in university, I was studying to be a chartered accountant. Um, it kind of positioned me more as this advisor, not as an entrepreneur myself. So once I graduated from university and once I got my accounting designation, I was working with entrepreneurs, but they were my clients. Like they were again, this other, I was advising them. I knew and kind of learned my own skills, like financial management, what information is, is useful and critical for financial and investment decisions. You know, it wasn't until more recently into my thirties that I was actually Inching closer to being that entrepreneur, being that person who made those business decisions.
1: Isn't that so so interesting? Yeah. And
2: it's a, you know, it's a little, you know, it's a function of exposure, but then also I got this narrative in my head that it wasn't something that other people did. That was a recurring theme for me though. Like, so in 1999, I moved from Canada. I'm from Toronto originally. I was living in Toronto. I moved from Toronto to the UK. I moved to London in 1999 and that was the beginning of this shift in my mindset because moving to London was something other people did and it was the first thing that I did that I thought oh other people did and it was like oh wait a second like I can do this too and that was kind of the beginning of this shift of like okay what are the things that I always thought other people did that I couldn't do like let's try it out like I'm kind of curious what a corporate finance advisor does like, what is this m and A? I'm kind of curious what this is. Like, let's go figure it out. What is investment banking? Let's go try. That. <laughs> a lot of it was a little bit accidental, but it was definitely fueled by curiosity. And then that kind of comes full circle because it's also the reason why I named my business peak as in peak your curiosity. It was this embracing of the unknown and being curious about doing stuff that I hadn't done before.
1: Oh, that makes so much sense. I'm so grateful that you're sharing all of this because I think that for so many people, this uncertainty, the not knowing, the feeling like an imposter, right? Well, that's something other people do, or I don't do that. Or even just the experience of stumbling into something is so common. Like, I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs I interview where they're like, well, I don't even think of myself as an entrepreneur. Or, yeah, it took a while to learn. And I myself all the time, like I write founder and then I delete it. When I'm typing it out to somebody and I just, the mental and mindset implications of all of this are so interesting as well.
2: You know, there's a lot of weight in some of these words and terms, like, and sometimes people ascribe a little bit too much to it, Mm. right? And then we get attached to this idea of what it's supposed to be, as opposed to taking that word and applying to yourself and us defining what that means for us. I have to do that all the time. I have to be honest. Yeah. Because we're surrounded by ideas of like, you know, who is a CEO? Who is an investor? What do investors look like? <laughs> what does success mean? That's a big one. What does work <laughs> look like,
1: right? Like, yeah. What does parenting look like? All of these questions, a thousand percent.
2: No one sees the figuring out part. Like, No one sees the struggling and the stumbling and the experimenting. We kind of talk, I think, in the startup space, we talk a little bit more about it now. But no one sees it, right? We see the success at the end or we talk about the outcomes at the end of that journey and that struggle, but no one actually sees the experimenting, the trying a thing, and it didn't quite work out. <laughs> right. Or maybe we just have short memories. We don't We don't remember that afterwards. And also, like with me, people kind of see what they want to see. You know, people think I'm all about the numbers because I'm an accountant, I'm an ex-banker, I'm an investor, I have a math degree, but like, I am a very emotional person. All the major decisions in my life were actually driven by intuition because how could I have possibly made a big decision about my life with full information? Moving to London, moving to Vancouver, starting a business, like I have no idea how things are going to turn out you know, I had to take these leaps of faith and kind of follow hunches. Like, yes, I do a bit of research, but like, there's only so much research you can do. Right. And even if I read up about other people starting a business or other people moving to London or Vancouver, those are their experiences, not the experience I'm about to have. I'm not a hundred percent analytical, but people assume I'm very numerate and analytical It's part of what I do, but there's a lot of emotion and intuition involved. And then people think I am a super planner, like I plan everything. (laughs) I like to plan sometimes, but I've learned, you know, there's only so much you can plan because things don't go to plan. Let's plan what we can so that our lives aren't complete chaos. But then we have to make room for uncertainty. And when we make room for it, that's when we can handle the risk and, and the uncertainty a lot better. One of my latest phrases that I've had two people quote me on now yeah. <laughs> is routine makes space for spontaneity. It's been a necessity after I had my daughter because raising a child, like there's so much uncertainty. Like I have no idea how she's going to react to a thing. I have no idea what she likes, what she doesn't like, you know, what she's afraid of, what she's excited about, like, we are learning about all this every single day. And every single day is different. You know, one morning, she's scoffing her breakfast and eating really well. The next morning, she's refusing to eat like, <laughs> and it's the day after Halloween, and we're having to deal with the candy conversation. And yeah,
0: every day that. is new.
2: I love and, that. And, but I worked out like, I need a few routines mm-hmm. in my life. So that I'm not fighting fires all the time because there are fires to fight. But if I have a little bit of routine, then the baseline of stability and that gives me more room to deal with all the unexpected things.
1: Yeah. Okay. So wait, I want to just repeat that again. Routine makes space for spontaneity because that's beautiful. And then also you just talked about something that I think I want to dive into a little bit further. And this idea of decision-making people have assumptions about, oh, you're meticulous, you're a planner, you're analytical, so you must do all of these things to make decisions. But before we got on the podcast, you talked about how decision-making and helping others make decisions is also about, in your words, integrating head, heart, body, and soul. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what that means and how do you do that?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this was coming from a reflection on how I made major decisions in my life, and then reflecting on how people were making investment decisions in the traditional sense, right? So I have worked in environments where it's very analytical, spreadsheets coming out of people's ears, financial models, all sorts of assumptions going into these financial models. And of course, you know, there's various biases and inaccurate things assumed. And so then the models break down. And so I've seen where an over-analytical environment misses out things, doesn't capture the fact that it's our emotions that drive decisions. So ironically, there is research around how it's emotions that help us make that final decision, tips us one way or the other. So we can do all the analysis that we want. We can be so-called rational about decision-making a popular example out there is like trying to decide what restaurant to eat eat at, so you can analyze the facts or the observable data about a restaurant like is it really busy? Well, busy might mean it's popular, but busy might also mean you can't get a table. you know what's the food like you know what have other people rated the food or whatever. You can line all that up side by side and and make yourself a list of pros and cons about eating in a particular restaurant, but it's actually an emotion. That will tip you one way or the other. Antonio Damasio is the, the more well-known researchers in this space. And so I took that, you know, and brought it with me to my work with investment decision making. And I work, you know, mainly with startups. And so we're having to make investment decisions about companies and founders where there's not a lot of data. Like there's not that much to analyze. We can try as we might. And, and we do, you know, I think it's smart to collect. As much information as you can that's available. But at some point, you have to also pay attention to how you feel about something because that emotional driver is going to either propel me to spend lots of time with a founder and help them be successful. Time is short. We have limited time. I'd rather spend time with someone that, you know, I enjoy spending time with them. I feel energized spending time with them. And then I mentioned earlier about intuition, again, with startups and with this kind of decision-making, there's a lot of uncertainty and you can't analyze something that hasn't happened yet. So we do need to tap into our intuition to help inform these decisions, especially where there's a lot of uncertainty. I wrote Integrate Investing, and it's about integrating analysis, emotion, body, and intuition into our decisions in order to make more complete, fulsome decisions, particularly in the face of uncertainty. And so I try to do that in all aspects of my life. But in particular, I brought it to my work as well. And you ask, like, how do we integrate? So the sort of simplest sense, like anytime I'm approaching a major decision, you know, I do ask, hey, what should we do? The analysis part kind of answers the should part, i.e., we've we've done all our research, we've got all the data. What should we do? What makes sense? And then the second step is, well, what do we want to do? You know, what's the emotional driver? What's the desire behind that? The body part is also paying attention to like whether there are any physical signals. Or, you know, like if you're tired or hungry or stressed, like that's going to affect your decision making. And that's the physiological aspect of decision making. And then lastly, the intuition part is, what do you know to do? And it's this tapping into this like quiet centered part to pick up on. What do you know is the answer is the decision to be made here going for a walk? meditating, you know, trying to cut out all the noise is really key to tapping into our intuition. We need more time to do that.
1: Wow. So I keep saying, wow, after you finish speaking, which is just a testament to how much wisdom there is inside of all of this. And I want to layer in to what you just said, some observations in in working with women in my own life. Which is, I think, and tell me if this is your experience too, I think that the world of work as we've constructed it, and also kind of the psychographic world, is really limited in terms of tapping into our feelings and our emotions. And so, frankly, we don't have very much practice in our social realm with saying, stop, wait, listen, what am I feeling? Like, what am I experiencing? And even just learning how to do that can feel clunky and new for a lot of people.
2: Hmm. It's so key. Like I've seen so many examples of this in my own working life, like ranging from when I was an investment banker to, you know, even more recently, working through a situation where there was some conflict. On the one hand, we have to address the emotional side of it. Otherwise, we can't Get to the heart of the decision. So in this more recent example with a startup where there was some conflict, I'm trying to figure out how to describe this without divulging too much confidential information, but there was conflict between a founder and their board. I was kind of like a translator in a way because I could hear what the board was saying and it was all very sensible. (laughs) I could make sense of what they were saying because I wasn't as emotionally invested in the situation as the founder. And so I reminded them, it's like, hang on, like, you have to address how the founder feels. Like, you need to address the emotion involved in this conflict. By kind of framing it like that, we we're actually able to have much better conversations and communications around the conflict to the point that I heard the board repeating it back to me. Like, they started to use The words like, yes, this is very emotional.
1: Mm. Yes, we need Mm -hmm. to pay
2: attention to the founder's emotions, how they feel about this situation. And so that was, you know, to me, that was a success. It's like, okay, like there's a recognition of the importance of acknowledging, not ignoring the emotion involved in this. Then we can better communicate and then we can get to better decisions. And then in other circumstances where this is more like an employed situation. People wanted to leave emotional and like personal life out of the workplace. But I found that once we kind of introduced like a more human side to working, it became more fun and we actually worked better together.
1: Fascinating. Explain more.
2: Yeah. Oh, so, this is another personal story. It was my first investment banking job and I you know, join this small team and the culture was, you know, I don't want to hear about your personal life. I don't care. Like it's all about the deals. And it was all very like serious and analytical. And, and so I was like the first client facing female to join this team. It was all guys. And there was one day <laughs> I was going through a breakup with my then boyfriend and I, you know, I was in the office and I was just feeling kind of down. And my manager at the time asked me, you know, what's wrong? And I said, no, 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 you don't want to hear about it. Like just, you know, carry on with what you're doing. This will pass. And it was like, he was, you know, poking, probably saying, come on, tell me what's wrong. And so I told him I was having this problem with this boyfriend at the time who was Irish. And so my manager put on a fake Irish accent and like tried to cheer me up. <laughs> it was the most endearing thing and kind of revealed this more human side to him and it was strangely a turning point because from that point forward like we all kind of became friends like we actually liked working with each other and like we could actually have fun and laugh and kind of talk about how we were feeling about stuff it just kind of showed like it's okay to bring that stuff into the workplace. Like I read a lot about folks who say, no, like life is life and work is work. And like you separate it. And, but in my experience, it's a lot more fun when there's these hints of the human side of us, we can actually get more done and have more fun working together. If we did that. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. The reason I've mashed up the word startup and pregnant next to each other is on purpose.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Right? Like, we've got to bring these two things back in touch with each other. I want to make sure we have time to talk about the next part of your pregnancy and parenting story, because where we left off earlier in our conversation, you had just gotten pregnant. You had just turned 40. Happy Mm -hmm. birthday. What a birthday present. What was your experience of pregnancy like? And can you take us through what it was like to become a mom?
2: So my pregnancy was pretty good. I... Took a few steps, like I was working with a coach at the time who advised get some processes in place. Like (laughs) she was trying to warn me that things were going to shift and and I couldn't do everything myself and I, I needed to make sure I had some processes in place. But I took advantage of having lots of energy in the second trimester. That was summer 2014, and I and I got a lot done just to paint the picture. Like I was trying to get the business model of that accelerator to work with my business partner. I was trying to gather together like a critical mass of investors around peak funds so it could launch. In 2014, I had, I think, one major commitment and then like a handful of people who were interested, but like I had to move them to signing on the dotted line. Like I had, you know, I'm gesturing right now, like I'm trying, you know, arms around these people, trying to bring them closer together. All the while, you know, I knew that I had this November deadline um, cause once baby came. I kind of anticipated I wouldn't have the same kind of energy or time to do this heavy lifting and, and figuratively and this work. Right. I look back on this and I'm kind of appalled a little bit that I actually had the time. I think I was writing on Sundays or something like that. <laughs> like somehow I had the time to like continue to work on the book, too. I was pretty fortunate. I had quite a bit of energy in the second trimester. I remember taking long naps in the evenings in the first trimester. I didn't have morning sickness, so I didn't have to deal with that fortunately, and I just had a lot of good support around me. And it's all a little bit of a blur because somehow I was able to, you know, set a date to do the first close of the fund. And it's a small fund, it's an angel fund, but I you know, somehow managed to set a date of mid-October for the first close. My daughter was due in like the first week of November. I have no idea how I did that. I'll be honest. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was just sheer will of like, it has to be done because if I don't close this first bit before my daughter is born, I don't know when I'll be able to do it. It's good that I anticipated that because Again, I had a bit of a plan, like, okay, like, you know, the first six weeks, I'll definitely be home with my daughter and, you know, recover and spend time with her. I couldn't have anticipated how my emotions were so mixed after she was born. Like, I'm the primary income earner in our household. My husband had already decided, like, he was going to be the primary caregiver. He was going to stay home full time because I had these different business ventures and the fund, like it was kind of expected that I would have to go back out there after she was born. (laughs) And I kind of didn't want to at first. I had this moment of like, what if I want to stay home? Like, why can't you go to work? (laughs) And that lasted for like at least six months. (laughs) And I I was still running around doing stuff with the funds. Here's the timeline. The first close happened in October 2014. My daughter was born in November. We made our first investment in December. Um <laughs> wow. and then I know, but it was this haze like partly, here's the stuff that has to get done. And when I'm not doing that, I'm going to try to sort out my life and like spend time with my daughter, but like just ruminate <laughs> over like what next. Spring 2015. I continued to welcome new investors into the fund. It's an open fund. So investors can still come in. And then I think we made our second investment in April, 2015. There was this weird thing of like, the fund had a little bit of momentum. I had obligations. Like I had other investors that I was responsible for and accountable to. And at the same time in the background, the stuff that people didn't see was me trying to figure out like, how am I going to do this? Like, How am I going to build a livelihood and be a mom? Like, what if I don't want to go back to work? And by that point, like all the consulting, the management and advisory work had stopped because I didn't have the time and energy to go out and do that. And like, my hormones are up all over the place. I'm really emotional. I'm like, my world is my daughter. I barely noticed my husband at some points, like I just told him point blank, like you are not high on my list of priorities right now. I'm just saying this really honestly. It's very different because I fell in love with my husband again afterwards. Mm. But it took a while to get out of this haze. And maybe some of it is, I don't know if this is true, but maybe part of it is like a bit of a survival thing. I've just brought this small life into the world and I need to pay attention to her. <laughs> and that's the priority. I had also brought, into the world, you know, this fund. And so there was like, you know, I had to pay attention to that too. And then everything else just fell off my plate. At the same time when I stepped away from spring, like I just had to prioritize around what I had time and energy for. Two other things happened in 2015 that kind of then set the pace for, for how I got to now, like how the pieces of the puzzle actually fell into place now. I think it was like August or September I gathered a group, three other of my entrepreneurial women friends who are all moms, two of which have kids that are older than my kids. And then one whose daughter was like six-ish months older than my daughter and just had like this, I don't know what you call it. It almost felt like a bit like an intervention. Like they just kind of worked through the challenge with me of like, what's the most important thing right now? You know, what are the things that have to be done? Which was like, I had to provide for my family. Like, I'm the one who had to generate an income for our family. The fund, you know, I have responsibilities associated with the fund. You know, I want to spend time with my daughter. And my friends helped me work through all these issues. And one of the conclusions that came out of it was, they said, you know, maybe you should put the fund on hold interesting. These are the other things that are more important to your survival and happiness. Maybe this is the thing that's actually not that important at this time. It's almost like permission to put the fund on hold. And what did I do? Right. I did the opposite. <laughs> but it was big, like, but, but I could only do the opposite because I had this permission, like this sort of feeling of like, Okay. It's not the be all and end all. So somehow a weight got lifted, which then actually enabled me to keep going with the fund. I ended up reconnecting with my mentor, who's now a new business partner on the US based stuff. Basically, my daughter was around 11 months or 12 months old. And then the snowball kind of started of where, you know, I was able to work. On businesses, help manage businesses in the U.S. where my mentor has invested. And, you know, I was rolling my sleeves up as an entrepreneur. I was building the fund. I was like, again, like welcoming more investors to the fund, investing in more startups. And all the pieces of the puzzle did start to fall in place. But I do credit that conversation I had with my three women, mom, entrepreneurial friends who helped lay out the priorities and kind of enabled me to give myself permission Mm. to choose and to kind of, I don't know, it kind of just took some of the pressure off. Maybe I'm not entirely sure what magic happened there.
1: I think this is so interesting. (laughs) And I think it relates back to what you were saying about decision-making earlier like sometimes it's harder to make a decision and avoid. And when someone gives yes. us a wise opinion or a point of view, you can actually bump up against it. Like you don't have to take that advice or opinion, but you can say, oh, wow, I'm having a strong emotional reaction against mm-hmm. that, right? Like I actually want to make the opposite decision. And that mm-hmm. sounds like what you've done in some ways. And a friend of mine recommends this to me all the time, like, If I don't know how to make a decision going forward, just wake up one day and choose one, like flip a coin and choose one. And then watch what happens inside. There's like a dread reaction or like a rejection, or there's like enthusiasm and excitement. And that can be helpful if you don't know how to tap into what you know, which it sounds like you're doing kind of with your friends and your advisors and the women mentors that you have where they're like, oh, well, you don't have to do this. And then inside, you're like, actually, I really, really want to.
2: Mhm. It's funny like indecision is like the worst place to be. I personally actually hate being on the fence about stuff, but at the same time I know that sometimes we have to just be in that place of not deciding yet because we're still gathering information.
1: It's true. It's and true. then
2: when we're equipped we can make some decisions. That's one thing, but to your point, so somewhere in between this journey of mine Well, between being an investment banker and and really starting this entrepreneurial journey, I literally ran away to the mountains and I was training to be a ski instructor, actually got my qualification. and, And, you know, there's a lot of decisions to be made in downhill skiing, like where there's uncertainty and risk. And one of my coaches had said, a bad decision is better than no decision. I say that to people, and like they cringe. They're like, "Oh my gosh!" Like I can't imagine making a bad decision, but it's true. Like making a decision moves you forward, so you can gather some more information. Whereas indecision—if you're not gathering information—you're just sort of standing still. Like in the skiing context, you would freeze to death on the top of the mountain. Right. <laughs> um, and so I do have that at the back of my mind. You know, sometimes it's good to just get off the fence and move take one little step forward. And it is really valuable talking through stuff with other people with different perspectives. Like I'm so used to being the advisor and, you know, the person that people come to for decisions. But when it's my own decisions, like I need to do the same, like I need to, you know, talk to other people and gather some different perspectives to get off the fence.
1: I think this is so interesting. And I could talk to you about this for hours and hours. That last thing you said about indecision being so problematic, it actually, A, I needed to hear this today in particular, but it lifts a little bit of the weight off your chest. My, I'll speak from my experience. It lifts a little bit of the weight off my chest when I get stuck in that like eddy of perfectionism where I'm like, oh, I have to make the Best or the perfect decision, and then I take too long. And it's like, actually, sometimes the best thing is to take a step forward and be like, What the heck? We'll try this double black diamond. And if you end up taking off your skis and like crawling down the side of the mountain, it's okay. You're going to learn a lot. You're going to be like, Oh, maybe I need some more ski lessons, right? But that like taking the step and not getting stuck in the indecision. Oh, brilliant. Okay, mm-hmm. Bonnie, for my last question, actually. I want to ask you, is there anything I didn't ask you that you really want to talk about or share? Well,
2: like to kind of stitch it together, like, you know, I've had this wandering career path that kind of started in this place of, you know, is a little bit of caution and seeking security. Like, as I said, partly because the way I was brought up, like I wasn't exposed to risk taking at the time. I learned later, like my parents did take risks. They just took them in a different way. They took them early by the sheer fact of just immigrating to Canada. When they were raising their family, they were in this place of like, okay, now it's all about safety and security and stability for our children. So that's kind of like was the start of my journey. (laughs) And it's been this kind of path of learning about risk taking and curiosity and embracing risk and uncertainty. And then the other theme has been around decision making. Like everything that I've done or do has to do with how do we make decisions? What information do we need to make decisions? And information also includes that emotional and intuitive part. You know, as an investor, it's all about investment decisions, but it's also and I'm learning this now about business decisions, right? So I have a lot of respect for entrepreneurs and operators that then become investors. Like I didn't quite understand it because I started off as a financier; Money was my product. Like it's what I did, but I have a real great appreciation for folks that have that operational experience that informs decisions. And I think that really does contribute to being a good investor But investing is like essentially about decision making, but so is running a business, right? So is being a startup founder or CEO, it's all about the decisions that you make. So anyhow, that's been the recurring theme that stitches everything together on my path. I'm really fascinated by how we make decisions and and how to do that better.
1: Wow. Do you have any books or people that you follow in the world of decision making that you would recommend to our listeners? Not on
2: decision-making specifically. I've been reading a lot of books over the past year. They're kind of all over the place and they're all a little bit different. Really, it's about getting as informed as possible and gathering those different perspectives. So books-wise, the one that kind of comes to the top of my mind is Margaret Atwood's Payback. It's really neat. So Margaret Atwood kind of resurgence and popularity thanks to Handmaid's Tale. But she did a series of lectures and it's in written form in a book called Payback. And it's about the story of debt. <laughs> Interesting. It's a, it's a small book. It's a really neat read because it's got her amazing storytelling ability and will give like a really different perspective on debt and what debt means and like the money side of things. So that's pretty cool. And then I've been reading... A bunch of CEO type books over the past year. So, Outsiders by William Thorndike. That actually sort of is along the theme of entrepreneur as investor. Just finished Good to Great, Jim Collins' Good to Great, which I'm also kind of reading, like, you know, some people have some criticism of that book, but it's, you know, I thought it was a pretty good read. And then, in terms of people that I follow, I'm a huge fan of Kieran Snyder and Textio. Kieran Seattle based, and their technology analyzes words.
1: You interesting.
2: But the impact words have on hiring decisions. There's a lot of really interesting stuff, like just opposite end of the spectrum. But I think, you know, starting with my recommendation of Margaret Atwood and ending with Kieran Snyder kind of speaks again to like, it's not just about numbers, right? It's right. actually about how words communicate and inform decisions too.
1: Where can people find you on the internet and more about what you do? Yeah. So you can
2: find me at peakventures.com, P-I-Q-U-E, ventures.com. And I'm also pretty active on Twitter. I'm at Bonnie O. Wong. And if you really want to chat with me, I'm also a writer on Quora. So Q-U-O-R-A. Look up Bonnie Foley Wong. I- answer questions about capital raising and angel investing and all sorts of other things in between quite often. So you can find me, find me there. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you.
0: Thank you so much for being a listener of the show. A few more things before we end this episode. First, if you know of a woman or a friend that would benefit from this show, send them a link to our website at startuppregnant.com. So many of you have already reached out and shared your stories, what this podcast is doing for you. And for that, I am so grateful. So if you know of somebody that would love to listen in or you think that these stories would really hit it home for somebody, feel free to send it along. Second, if you've got a story that you need to share or tell, head over to startuppregnant.com and send us a note. We have had so much reader mail already and your stories mean the world to us. We are proudly listener-sponsored, so if you want to sponsor the show and hear more episodes, head over to our Patreon page and you can buy us a cup of coffee or two or three. We'll take many cups of coffee. If you want any of the show notes or links from this particular episode, all of the references and tools and tips that we talk about are always posted on startuppregnant.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.